Hello, and welcome back to my Love Letter Time Machine, where we discover a Yorkshire love story from the 1880s told through the love letters of two very ordinary people, Fred Shepherd and Janie Warburton. My name is Ingrid Birchall Hughes, and I just happen to be their great-great-granddaughter. This week, we take a look at what Fred was up to during the Christmas of 1878 and the New Year of 1879, which he helpfully recorded for us in the diary that he kept when he was 19 years old. The diary itself is just a stapled exercise book with lined pages and a paper cover. He started in 1879, but it appears that he retrospectively filled in the entries for 1878, starting in May and with the day that he met Janie. His desire to record how and when they met, telling me more about the depth of his feeling for her rather than the actual words he wrote. The following entries provide a tantalising portrait of Christmas activities in a working class community in Sheffield. There's plenty of bumping into Janie too. Monday, December the 23rd. Went to the Sheffield Albert Hall to hear Mendelssohn's Elijah. Santley as Elijah. Wednesday, December the 25th, Christmas Day. Went to church in the morning. In the afternoon, walked round Tinsley, Brinkworth, Catcliffe and Hansworth. Evening, saw Janie again. Had an understanding with her that I was to see her once a week. Thursday, December the 26th. Had a half-day holiday. Tom Hughes and I went to O'Donnell's to tea. Played at cards until 10pm. I would not play for money, but I lost all of my nuts. Friday, the 27th. Went to the entertainment after the social tea at Darnell School. Saw Janie there. Saturday, 28th. Went to see the ventriloquist Maccabee at the Albert Hall. Sunday, 29th. Went to church in the morning. In the afternoon to my brother Walter's to dinner and tea. And at night to see Janie. Charles Santley, at that time, was the most eminent opera singer in Britain. And I was delighted when I found a crackly recording of his voice on YouTube, which he had recorded much later in life. Although his voice and the recording is showing signs of age, it's rather brilliant knowing that my great-great-grandfather listened to him, and it makes me feel a sudden, unexpected connection. Frederick Maccabee was also something of a Victorian superstar, and went on to write an important book on the art of ventriloquism. When I did my first research trip to Sheffield, most of the three weeks I stayed were spent in the library and in the archives, but some of that time was spent visiting different locations around the city, aided and abetted by my cousin, who was kind enough to be my tour guide, as they had lived in Sheffield most of their life. One of the places I wanted to find were the remains of Christchurch Attercliffe, where several family members were buried, but also where Fred sung in the church a moment of which which he brought to life when he wrote about that particular New Year's Eve, where he sang some hymns with his friends. Thursday, December the 31st, 1878. Went to the children's tea at Attercliffe 
Afterwards, there was a magic lantern. After that, Betsy Panton, myself, Will Mies and Miss Hopkinson went to the top of our church steeple. Splendid view. Could see all around. Coming down, we had days and moments, and now the day is over in the bell chamber. Enjoyed ourselves immensely. Fred's New Year's Eve sounds rather lovely, rounding it off with a bit of sing with his friends. Fred was a baritone, and singing and music feature a lot in his writing and letters. Sadly, most of the church was destroyed by a bomb, dropped by the Luftwaffe in the Sheffield Blitz in December 1940. That night, more than 10,000 bombs rained down on the steel mills of Attercliffe and Darnell, and the church, being sighted in the middle of it, didn't really stand a chance. But there is a surviving section, which my cousin and I found, and I stood looking at it a while, while my imagination strained to hear the faint singing of hymns in a bell tower long since gone. After this, we carried on into Darnell, where much has changed since Fred and Jane's day. The steel mills are gone, and much of it has been rebuilt. The other two things on my list to find were the Wellington pub, once owned by Jane's aunt, where Jane often helped out, and Fred's family home, where he lived with his parents and siblings. We found the Wellington, which was literally shrouded, with scaffolding and safety netting. It looked like it had been recently sold and was undergoing massive reconstruction. The backyard, where once had been an orchard with pear trees, was a barren plot, and all that was growing were some poppies in a crack in the bricks. On the busy road with the destruction and chaos, it was impossible to imagine former family members there, or to think of Fred popping in on his way home from work in the hope that Janie was visiting her aunt. So we went on to find Fred's house on Freedom Hill, which has a different name now. The family had originally lived at number 34, and then in the 1870s they had moved to the top of the hill when Fred's father, Alfred, bought number 94. And there it was, although now painted cream, a little red-bricked terrace house with a passage and a tiny yard. With respect to it being a private home, I discreetly patted the gatepost that Fred would have walked past every day. It's here that he wrote his diary, and on the morning of January the 1st, 1879, Fred opened up the pages of his new exercise book and launched into one of the most ambitious sets of New Year's resolutions I think I've ever read. By tradition, the first three days of January are by far the longest entries he writes, taking up several pages and include lists of resolutions, a passage on personal stock-taking, and several tables reviewing his work attendance, study, and a breakdown of his expenditure. It's a beautiful window into how Fred sees himself, and the hyper-focus on self-improvement seems almost overwhelming. Fred quotes the following verse from Ring Out Wild Bells by Alfred Lord Tennyson, who was still Poet Laureate at the time. Ring out the old, ring in the new, ring happy bells across the snow. The year is going, let him go, ring out the false, ring in the true. Fred then writes, This is the day in which, figuratively speaking, people turn over new leaves, and I conform to the general custom not because it is a general custom, but because I firmly believe it to be a means of good. For instance, if a person is of a ruminating turn of mind, he or she may, on the last day of the old year, 
look back through the past, perhaps with regret for the lost opportunities, time wasted, and it may be with pleasure for some things that may have been done or said. Then, from the past, examine the present, physically, morally, intellectually, socially, and financially. Then, from the present, look forward to the future, perhaps making good resolutions for the future observance and guidance, and confirming old ones. I will endeavour to carry out this plan. Fred is definitely coming across as a person of a ruminating turn of mind, which I can see is both a wonderful strength because it seems to be his foundation of soaking up every learning opportunity and something of a weakness because it causes him so much worry. I kind of wonder if I've inherited this particular chunk of DNA. Anyway, Fred then has a brief retrospect of the past in which he mentions his regret in courting a Miss Clara Beck of Worksop who never spoke to him after he sent her a valentine, and that he attended the Sheffield Church of England Institute to study mathematics. He doesn't touch on the subject of Janie at all, but dives straight into. Now for the present. This would be called in commerce stock-taking. A. Physically. Height. 5 foot 9 inches. Best of health. Weight. 10 stone. 13 pounds. Can play cricket football, swim, skate, row, etc. Chest measurement, and here he's left a space, but he's not filled it in. B. Morally, never swear or have any intercourse with women. C. Intellectually, above average, I have fair knowledge of arithmetic, algebra, as far as equations, shorthand, correspondence style, grammar, cannot pass or analyse, Euclid, up to propositions of the first book. D socially, lower class, have a good many acquaintances but few friends, reckoned good conversational powers, a lot of information but it is not classified and not very ready. Trade clerk, doing rail mill work at Messrs Brown, Bailey and Dixon's Attercliffe. Financially, not very prosperous. Ready money, five shillings and eleven pence. In the post office, two shillings and five pence. Total, eight shillings and four pence, 25 shillings per week salary, 14 shillings per week board. The average height of a man in the UK in the 1870s was five foot five. So Fred was tall by the standards of the day. His study appears to be heading into higher education territory. Euclid's Elements, written in 300 BC, was still used as a textbook for teaching mathematics and geometry well into the first half of the 20th century. In Fred's time, all university students were expected to have an understanding of at least part of Euclid's elements. While Fred didn't go to university, it would have been difficult to get there from his starting point, it looks like he is endeavouring to educate himself to that level. My heart aches a little for Fred, He seems to be trying to be fair but humble in his description of himself. He's proud of his achievements, but from this and future letters, I get the feeling he feels his class and lack of opportunities, but it also drives him to push himself. It was fortunate that there were adult education establishments in Sheffield at that time where men like Fred could continue to study after leaving school. As to his conversational powers and friendships, I get the impression that while Fred may have lacked confidence here, people liked having him around and sought him out, despite an element of natural shyness. In the next section, Fred sets out his plans. 
Now, as to the future, I make the following resolutions, which, with the help of God, I intend to keep. And then the list that follows is absolutely priceless. Here it is. One, that I get up every morning at 5am and go to bed at 10pm and be at work at 9am. Two, that I practice the utmost economy of time and money. Three, that I never swear or use bad language of any kind, nor lose my temper on any pretext, whatever. Four, that I will not read over meals and not eat too much at meals, nor have more than three meals a day. Five, to endeavour to get complete control over myself. Six, that I will read as few novels as possible, but rather inclined to biography. Seven, that I get as much study as possible. I propose to carry out the following plan. Eight, that I refrain from speaking ill of anyone. Nine, that I get as much muscular exercise as possible, having due regard to resolution seven. Ten, that I will be at church on Sunday morning, not later than 10.30am, not 6.30pm. 11. That I endeavour to learn something. 12. To enter up everyday particulars of the previous day's events and expenditure. I did not commence very well this year, as it was 7.40 this morning when I got up and 11.45 when I went to bed. Had a long walk with Janie in the evening from 8 till 10.15 two and a quarter hours of bliss. Fred's plan to get up at 5am every morning when he records that he's not risen before 6am for the last three years seems a little ambitious. However, the fact that he's kept records of his getting up and going to bedtimes and worked out his average lateness for the last three years seems well obsessive. It's revealing, but I'm not entirely sure of what. A need for control? A methodical approach to everything? His timetable is carefully drawn up for a private diary. I get the impression he's rather enjoyed ruling it all out in red pen and working out a key and planning it so carefully. I can almost hear him humming. It's beautiful. Fred's resolutions feel like a perfectionist straitjacket to me, but I don't know how much of this was to do with the expectations of young men at the time or how much to do with Fred's own personality. His later letters and Janie's affectionate poking of fun at him suggest a somewhat serious nature, overburdened with trying to be good. Other things that struck me, I suspect that number five, the two endeavour to get complete control over myself, may well be about masturbation. That novels are another guilty pleasure, and that Fred has actually got a pretty nice life for a young man of that class, with enough free time to pursue his studies and sports, which must have been relatively rare in Attercliffe and Darnell at that time. Fred's accounts give me the impression that he's a young man in a protected situation that gives him enough disposable income to fund his pursuits. He's giving just over half to his elderly mother and Shepherd for living at home. And he has to look presentable for his job as a trade clerk, so he spends about a quarter of his income on his appearance. Which leaves the rest for extras, some of which he spends on his education, and the largest chunk after this is spent on excursions, entertainment, games, music, etc. The National Archives Currency Converter says that Fred's salary of £66 in 1880 would have been worth £3,188 in 2005. It also says that back in 1880 this would buy you 200 days of craftsman's wages in a building trade, or six cows, or two horses. Not exactly measures of lifestyle that anyone can visualise. So I'm finding it tricky to work out if either Fred was being paid a living wage, 
or because he was living at home where everyone is making contribution, he was just able to benefit more from his money, more than somebody who was the head of the household, for example, and trying to make ends meet. Later letters show that both he and his brother Arthur are rearing a pig each, and they have a bit of a contest with each other as to whose will weigh more upon slaughter. Leaping ahead a bit in this story to December 1881, when Fred has moved to Middlesbrough, Arthur writes him a very brief letter in which he says, your pig only weighed 12 stone 2 pounds. Mr Marshall and our Lucy had it between them, 6 stone each, at 8 shillings per stone. So it earned 16 shillings. That's just over half a week's wages for Fred. It's not exactly a money spinner. However, generally the business of rearing pigs was a community activity and family and neighbours took turns in their timings of slaughter so that everyone could benefit. As the youngest lads in the family, it was quite likely that it was traditionally Fred and Arthur's job to feed the family pigs. Jane also mentions in a later letter that their pig being slaughtered weighed 19 stone and it was probably getting a lot more scraps from the leftovers at a busy pub than poor old Fred's pig back at home. I don't know at what level of society was economically viable to raise a pig. You've got to be able to afford the piglets and produce enough scraps to feed them, and I'm assuming that when households get to a certain level of income, and probably more importantly class, you stop with the bother and mess of a pig. Based on all this, I think Fred's family are not in poverty, They probably nearly always have two shillings to rub together, but not what anyone would consider well off. There are several places in Fred's diary where he runs out of ink mid-sentence and then continues to write in pencil. Then at the end of the week, he switches back to ink again. This looks for all the world like someone who gets to the bottom of a bottle of ink and then has to wait until payday to buy some more. This is again another moment where I'm reminded that I'm not just reading his words, but that he was a human being interacting with the paper that I now hold in my hands. Like he just stepped outside for a moment, perhaps to buy some ink. Thanks for listening to My Love Letter Time Machine. We'll be back in our next episode, in which we'll be having a look at Janie and her life situation back in the Cross Keys at Handsworth, where we discover the matriarch of the family and how two sisters ran two pubs with a small army of female relatives. In the meantime, you can follow me sharing excerpts of Fred and Janie's letters on Instagram at my love letter time machine, or one word, or on the blog mydarlingjanie.co.uk. Take care and have a great week.